Hello listeners, I am David Blakesley and this is episode 215 of Criterion Cast, the annual tradition of favorite Criterion releases of this year, 2023. This is our long-awaited follow-up to episode 214, which is our favorite Criterion releases of 2022, which means maybe we need to make a New Year's resolution and do some regular Criterion Cast main episodes sometime over the next 12 months. But uh, even if we don't, uh, I certainly enjoy this tradition, and I'm the guy who's been on all of them. This is our 14th year of doing this at Criterion Cast. Our first annual uh, look back at the year and Criterion was, uh, took place in 2010. I was kind of just a guest, kind of a guy that got invited to be part of the conversation, and I've become a little bit more of a regular here over the years, as longtime listeners, I'm sure, know. And we have a we have a nice panel today. That's going to look a lot like what we had last year, except we're adding a new voice. Uh, we've had a lot of different folks come and go over the years on this uh, on this episode, this kind of retrospective look back. Uh, very happy to be reunited with with a bunch of my friends here, folks that I've spent a lot of happy hours talking movies with uh, for quite a few years now. So let's go ahead and introduce our guests as we get ready to look back at our favorite releases of 2023 from the Criterion Collection. So our lineup today is going to start off with Jordan Esso. Jordan, welcome back. Thank you, David, and happy holidays to everybody. Very nice. Yeah, I look forward to hearing from you and everybody else. Our second guest is Aaron West, and he was planning to join us today, but he actually landed tickets to the Orange Bowl. He and his wife, Andrea, are down in Miami, Florida, ringing in the new year. We're recording on Saturday, December 30th, and they kind of got a nice deal on uh, tickets to the Orange Bowl, the uh, Georgia Bulldogs versus the Florida State Seminoles. Kind of a big college football game. So they, the, unfortunately, that game interfered with our planned time. So Aaron and I actually recorded a segment this morning where he and I kind of discussed his top picks, and I'm going to splice them in as smoothly as I can. All right. Well, Aaron, it's great to have you back on the podcast again in this uh, best of the year favorites of 2023 episode. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's uh, bright and shiny in Miami where I'm at for New Year's. So, um, uh, thanks for accommodating me because I this is my favorite show of the year. Didn't want to miss it, and I always love participating as, as much as listening. So, well, and I appreciate you taking time from your little uh, getaway uh, weekend there. You're kind of ringing in the new year. Uh, yeah, it would have been good to have you with the full group, but uh, I think this will work out just fine. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. Uh, between Jordan and our next guest, which is uh, Brad McDermott. Brad, welcome to this episode. This is your first time doing this year-end roundup with us. It is. It is. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about some uh, great releases from this past year. Definitely. Well, Brad, you've been a very uh, great contributor to my podcast, Criterion Reflections. Uh, Josh, has he ever been with you on uh, on the uh, Criterion Channel Surfing? 
Yeah, Brad's been on uh, a couple t- or once, and uh, we just recorded a uh, an episode that is in the can that will be out in a few months, probably. Excellent. Well, and that that yeah, very cool. I'm looking forward to hearing that. And that voice you just heard was our fourth guest, Josh Hornbeck. So, Josh, formally welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Yeah. I, you know, again, uh, this is my third time doing the the year end roundup, and it's just it's such a pleasure and a privilege to be here so thanks for having me again it does feel like a little bit of a kind of a holiday cocktail party let's gather around to share a few anecdotes and stories and just kind of catch up with each other and so that's kind of how we're going to get this thing started before we get into our favorite releases and all of that let's just kind of share some of our thoughts on the criterion collection what's developed within that little niche of the uh film world, uh, whatever thoughts or reactions you have uh, looking back on the year as a whole. So, Jordan, I'm going to give you the opportunity to get that conversation rolling. Uh, What were your thoughts about Criterion Collection's developments and trends in the year past? Well, I thought that the 2023 slate had a lot of obvious highlights for me, like Inland Empire and The Trial and, of course, the Pasolini box set. But for me, the most notable and exciting thing they did was inaugurate this new Janus Contemporaries line of releases. Uh, This is a move that suggests they're going to be more aggressively pursuing the conversation and evaluation of current cinema, which is something that I think has been happening more often in recent years, but now they're really kind of synergizing the theatrical distribution with the curation of home media and exclusive online streaming rights on the Criterion channel. They, uh, let's see, they describe the project like this. Janus Contemporaries releases Blu-ray and DVD editions of first-run films fresh from theaters in association with the Criterion Channel. So th- this seems like a, a natural progression to me from several previous Criterion enterprises, such as the distribution deal they had with IFC Films years ago that mm-hmm. brought, um, let's see, things like Alfonso Caron's Tumama Tambien to the collection, uh, Claire Denis' White Material, Steve McQueen's Hunger, Corrieta's Still Walking, etc. There's a lot of contemporary cinema that was added to the collection through that deal. And then they started near around the same time, I think, uh, a sort of short-lived series of lower-priced editions with less supplements mm-hmm. like Letter, ne- Letter Never Sent or Ministry of Fear. And uh these were available on Blu-ray um, and weren't quite as bare bones as the Eclipse series, which is, I think, another important reference point on the progression here. But of course, the Eclipse series seems to be <clears throat> on a permanent sabbatical. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we then we had this sort of rushed 2014 bare bones release of Blue is the Warmest Color, which I think still has oh, yes, yes. like the lowest SRP of any Criterion Blu-ray. Um, and the promise that they would release a full edition at some point in the future, which has not yet happened, but... Um, oh, then all the controversy kind of blew up. And yeah. That was that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But the instinct there, I guess, was to get the film into hands of cinephiles, home media cinephiles, while the buzz was still fresh. And I, mm-hmm. and it feels a little prophetic for the Janus contemporaries, which which seems to follow that same instinct, that um, that they want to get these films out quickly and not sort of take that long, arduous process to get the full criterion treatment. And I'm very pleased. I mean, if it's successful, I feel like it could be a great replacement for that local art house cinema that went out of business. Um, Like for me, there used to be this place uh, where I used to take dates to see first screenings of films like Monsoon Wedding and The Sessions and Pina and The Master, etc. 
And uh, they started to get so desperate because uh, they were losing money uh, that they would start to show like the Mission Impossible movies and the Harry Potter films. And, and then they eventually tore it down and replaced it with the Dick's Sporting Goods. So uh, mm. this feels like, you know, a, a decent replacement for those small mom and pop cinemas that are no longer showing, you know, recent art house movies. Um, they're priced uh, also uh, lower around that Never Let Her Sent uh, SRP. Um, mm-hmm. and similarly have conservative package of supplements. But the supplements are really good uh, so far, and they don't have spine numbers, uh, they don't have new cover art, and they don't have the fancy menus. In fact, I noticed the discs aren't very good at uh, remembering where you were at if you want to watch a film in multiple sessions. But mm. they're so cool, you guys. I'm really excited. I, I think um, there's something very fun about opening up a brand new corner of uh, of the Criterion Collection, a new tributary. And every film they've released so far under this banner, I think, has been really good. And some have been really special. Um, and when they're really special, like, I can't help but wonder, just like with the Eclipse series, you know, mm-hmm. down the road could a 4K Criterion full edition, you know, might be in the cards. Don't know. But um, they started out really strong. They had three releases in October and then three releases in November. So my only concern is no Janus Contemporaries released in December, none in January, and as far as we know, none in March. So they'll release one uh, called A Fire in February. And so I wish there was more clearly visible on the horizon, but A Fire is a great film, and for now I will look forward to that. Very good. You know, I was wondering, you know, once upon a time, there's this film, Tiny Furniture, that came out. Would that have been a Janice Contemporaries or not? And I'm not yeah. hating on that film. I just, I know it stirred up a lot of, uh, a lot of flack back, back in the day there. But uh, yeah, your, your points about these kind of fresh, right off the, you know, off the festival circuit films is a, is a really good one. And, and there have been a few that Criterion's released under their Criterion banner, but I, I like the fact that they've got sort of a dedicated category for that. And of course, Janice Films distribution is a, is a pretty key component of that. So this is not brand new films. It's just, it's films that they specifically have, you know, toured around and, and uh, licensed for distribution and all of that. So. Right. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll cue it over to Aaron's segment there. Aaron, why don't you go ahead and give us your take on Criterion Collection in 2023? Good question. Um, you know, this has been a weird year because I think it's been very much a transition for Criterion. You know, we have the Janus Contemporaries, so I'm sure that'll be talked about um, maybe even for 2024. But I think for Criterion in 2023, for me, is really when I embraced uh, the 4K upgrade, truly. Um I, I can't remember the exact time it, the Criterion started with this, with these upgrades or and releases. But I remember, you know, buying a couple of the early ones, but not many. You know, uh, David uh, Mulholland Drive, uh, also the Red Shoes, those were both pretty obvious because they, and they look amazing on 4K. This time, I, I this year I, I bought others, you know, for example, Videodrome. I didn't plan to <laughs> buy another copy of Videodrome. I have, what, four now, um, although... <laughs> Tim Lego will always have more than me, and uh, and yeah, this year I really uh, enjoyed the rewatches of 4Ks that I'd, I'd already seen uh, more than I expected, and I really noticed the difference. and And in fact, that'll that'll play out in some of my um, my picks, uh, at least one of them for sure. And then, all right, that was Aaron's comments. Uh, Brad, let's go ahead and hear a little bit of your impressions of Criterion 2023. Um, well, this is the year that I, I really felt Criterion leaned 
hard on the 4K and like really sort of put the pedal to the metal on 4K. And everything was sort of every almost every month was like, what are our biggest hits? Put them out on 4K. There's been a few like noticeable um, absences, but for the most part, like every single month, you could rely on one of their biggest sellers getting 4K, 4K treatment, which is great. Makes sense totally financially. Um, I'm just always wondering about like the wealth of films that we're still waiting to go from the DVD world to the Blu-ray world, right? So mm -hmm. there's still a lot of them that need updated. A lot of old releases that are still um, like from the very early days that are still very bare bones. Like, does anybody really want to buy like, you know, Olivier's Hamlet and <clears throat> Henry V? Because um, mm -hmm. those are really old. They're really in due for a new transfer. Um, there's a bunch of them sort of sitting in that state, right? Um, and uh, I am wondering just how much of the push for 4K, you know, takes up a lot of their time in transitioning some of those old DVD releases into the Blu-ray world. So that was that was my impression of 2023. I'm sure that's going to continue in 2024, and we'll talk about that, you know, when we get to that part of the podcast. But mm -hmm. but yeah, that's that was what I thought. Uh, yeah, my takeaway from 2023. Excellent. All right, Josh, what are some of your thoughts on the year in review? Yeah, you know, I I, I echo what what we've heard from Jordan and Brad. Um, you know, I think the Janus Contemporaries line is fantastic, and I love too that it's it's brought not only by Janus, but it's also brought by uh, the Criterion Channel. Um, that uh, the supplements are produced for the Criterion Channel, um, so it becomes this uh, this really lovely partnership with um, two branches of the Criterion family to get these discs out uh, and to get them out quickly. And I think we saw that with Drive My Car, um, which was the the first of this partnership between yeah. uh, Janus Films and Sideshow. Um, who is who's who Janice is partnering with on all of these releases as well and uh so you really get the sense of momentum uh from Janice in trying to get these things out and to me it's reminiscent of uh some of the the essential art house films uh in the early days when they would just release the the bare bones discs uh but I'm glad we have a few more supplements as well uh so I think that's really lovely um and uh, you know the the push to 4K has definitely uh, made my wallet happier this year, <laughs> as I'm not uh, upgrading everything to 4K. Um, uh, but you know, even in the stuff that they are releasing, that is that's not the the 4K push. You know, I was looking over my my shelf this morning, and I was still really really impressed by the breadth of titles that were coming out. They're still hitting the 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 depth that they're that they've been going for for such a long time you're still getting your your 70s auteur cinema you're still getting your uh classic uh hollywood you're still getting your um your 60s art house cinema um we're we're getting so many different quadrants and they're pushing into new spaces by focusing on films by women by directors of color uh they're they're hitting some filmmakers who are current the the films that wouldn't be able to be released on the janice contemporaries line because they're not 
released by Janus Films. I think about uh, some of the films that we'll talk about today. Um, but I also, you know, again, really love that they're partnering with um, modern distributors like Neon to get films out. I love that they're partnering with streamers like Netflix or Amazon to get uh, f uh, physical discs out. Um, because, you know, we've seen over the last you know, two years, uh, the push for streamers to get rid of their, their streaming content to write, uh, films off. And so to me, it also feels like it's a, a preservation, uh, it's an act of preservation to get these works out onto physical release. So I, I love what they're doing. Um, the, there is, there's a lot of really really interesting corners and they're exploring new corners as well as still keeping their fingers in the corners that they're known for as well. So uh, I think it's just been a great year. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, all of your thoughts pretty much uh, align with mine. You know, what was interesting, I, I made a comment in a, uh, one of the Facebook groups a, a little while ago, maybe the week or two ago where uh, some of the longtime members there have expressed, yeah, I only bought about five or six this year, or maybe, you know, there's, there's some good stuff, but I'm not sure I feel compelled mm -hmm. to own it. And I, you know, I respect that. And I, I, I get where they're coming from because some of that sort of core canon, you know, the, the Godard, Bergman, Fellini, Kurosawa, Ozu, those, the, the Truffaut, those guys who were sort of the essence of the Criterion Collection, they're not like they're scraping the barrel, but but those main canonical pieces really have been familiar. And if and if, if I was to say, well, what were the best three titles that Criterion released this year? Okay, Seventh Seal, Rules the Game, Three Colors Trilogy, boom, conversation over. You know, it's kind of all settled. But those are titles that Criterion has featured for, you know, decades, literally, some of them. And, and so they're familiar material. And so as, as folks like us who've been sort of doing this thing for a while, collecting and talking about these movies, we, we tend to look at what are the new titles that hadn't been released before. Maybe they got released on Laserdisc way, way back then or something like that. So, uh, yeah, but the expansion of that art house, uh, you know, uh, you know, we talk about Ingmar Bergman. Well, there's a lot more happening in Swedish cinema. You know, you, you had May Zetterling mm -hmm. set last year, Bo Viderberg this year. Puts Bergman in context, even though he was already an elder statesman of a sort by the time those directors were kind of coming into their own. But that is, yeah, that it is a, an exploration of diversity and and new corners of cinema. And I think Janus and Criterion realize they just can't keep, uh, you know kind of rehashing the stuff that was showing in the East Village back in the 70s, you know, in the glories of the art yeah. house era. And so uh, that, that sense of adventure and exploration uh, you know, continues. And and it may not be everybody's cup of tea. Maybe there's folks who were pretty eagerly buying up the whole Criterion line. Now it's like, well, I could be a little bit more selective. And I that might even apply to me. I'll have a little bit more to say about that perhaps as we get to looking ahead towards the end of the episode. But yeah, I mean, I think I think Criterion has had a very successful year. Um, there have been a few areas where you know, if you want to critique, you know, they've they I can see that they've cut some corners. That some of the packaging is not as lavish as far as booklets and you know the the extra you know richness, if you will. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily put them down or say that they're 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 past their prime because we're, we're also in a different economic reality in the marketplace uh, and and that's just that's just the situation that, that that they're having to deal with as a business uh, so you know it is different but I, I do I do sometimes look at some of those you know 
what you might call golden age uh, criterion era from like the early 2010s you know late to you know aughts where you really had some really nice packages some of them are still dvd only but you got a nice thick booklet in there and there was just a little bit of that extra care you know um some of those things are not quite as as lavish or, or as robust perhaps as they were but uh, as far as the quality of the films and their curation and and their and their judgment you know the, what they what they're putting that criterion C on continues to be of uh, significantly high quality uh, as far as I'm concerned so yeah that's my little bit of a take on what we've seen over the course of these past 12 months so, are we ready to get into our favorite cover and packaging? This is kind of what we do before we get into the favorite films themselves, but as a as a cover, maybe it's the artwork, maybe it's the package, maybe it's, you know, the heft that it has in your hand. Uh, I want to give each of you a chance to kind of bring the spotlight to your favorite packaging or cover of the year. So, Jordan, we're going to kick it over to you. Yes, sir. Well, I'll uh, respond directly to some of your thoughts there during the opening because my pick is for the release of film on the Wii's. And mm -hmm. in terms of robustness of packaging, this does feel like a release that could have come out during the prime of the, uh, the dual format releases. You've got a, you know, right. a, a yep. thick booklet stapled in the center. You've got two different, I have the 4k release. So actually I'm not confident yep. that the Blu-ray only release is formatted the same way, but at least in the 4k release, there's a, the digipack that, folds out you've got three discs and um you've got you know interior artwork uh, on the digipack itself and of course the cover on the slipcase so this feels like a very classic uh traditional amount of attention and so it's it is pretty pretty lavish mm -hmm. it is also just uh just in terms of the image my favorite of the year and so i'll say it's a illustration by sam hadley uh, this is the 1991 film by, of course, Ridley Scott, starring Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. And the image puts us tightly next to, but just outside of, you know, the one true sacred space of the narrative, which is Louise's 1966 Ford Thunderbird. And we've got film in the passenger seat. We've got Louise at the wheel, uh, chin slightly upturned, looking at the front windshield that we just get a corner glimpse of in the upper left-hand side. And the, the hierarchy of the image is based on an organization of warm colors versus cool colors, which is always just a really satisfying way to, to lay out an image that will become quite eye-popping. And you've got the saturated and sunlight, like burnt siennas of the women's hair and skin, you know, all collected inside uh, the warm off-whites of the convertible's interior. And this portrait is framed on the top, on the bottom, and the left by cool sky blues sort of insisting that the outside of the safety of their getaway car um, is a different place the atmosphere is very different uh, it's different color temperature it's got a different texture um, and then you notice that um, you know we only see pieces of the sky beyond the passenger side of the car and and while louise looks forward into the future ostensibly and thelma looks behind them ostensibly into their past it initially seems like our vantage point as a viewer is fixed only on the women, like only in the present. But then you've got this driver's side rearview mirror, this large and centered object in the foreground, which cleverly uh, has been optically hijacked and repurposed because it's not showing the rear view as designed because we can, we can only see the back of its casing. 
but the casing itself is so reflective. It is smuggling us a peek of the road ahead, you know, emphasizing the proposal of inevitability of their journey. It is the visual equivalent of Thelma's line near the end of the film, where she says to Louise, something's crossed over in me and I can't go back, and I just couldn't live. Mm. And w within this image, the road behind them isn't just a place they've left behind. It's a place that can no longer even be visually rendered. So Hadley's style here is painterly and energetic. Uh, his handling of those reflective metal elements in the car, it's truly luscious, very beautiful, and his overall handling of the tone uh, and distribution of shadow, it, it's all fantastic. My only regret is that I'm pretty confident this image was created digitally. And I can imagine that a real painting made with paint um, could have made it even better. Um, there, you know, there's all sorts of sophisticated software that emulates brush strokes and, and, and the, uh, the quality and texture of paint, but it is never the same, um, as an image that's actually, you know, physically mm -hmm. produced. And like I said, the, uh, the 4k release at least also includes this digipack, uh, interior image, this wraparound image that Hadley created that features the desert landscape. I'm folding it out for myself here. And you've got the Thunderbird in the distance rolling toward the horizon. Um, and this poetically completes not only the distance of their journey um, from the film, but also the themes that were already articulated in the cover image. You know, the past is ineligible for view, and the future is coming toward us very quickly. Uh, outstanding. Really great. Yeah. I always love your breakdown of the art, Jordan. Nice job of that. So, very good. Uh, all right, we're going to cue it over to Aaron. He, he selected the, well, you'll hear for yourself what he selected. <laughs> so, Aaron, what was your favorite cover or packaging from Criterion in 2023? So mine is, uh, I'm going with the, the cover and packaging. It's uh, Todd Browning's Sideshow Shockers, which, wow, what a great name for a box set. Uh, so that has uh, Freaks and um, the Unknown and the Mystic. And I really, I, I just love design, um, and I, I really love the way they have kind of highlighted the movies based on the characters in the movies, uh, just kind of little little color, colorful snapshots, and um, and really just the cover itself looks like kind of a, I guess a circus, you know, kind of that, that sideshow look, but also, you know, from olden times or the old days, so it has a little, um, you know, uh, it's not a perfect there's rendering there's uh scratches and you know it, it almost reminds me of like a really old print this cover it looks like it's been dra dragged around the floor a lot so but it really gives it kind of that authentic uh, you know pre-code feel and then uh, when you when you open when you hold hold this one in your hand it it really is um it's a it's a different kind of digipack than we're used to and then it has all this um I was trying to think of the word, I guess ephemera, something like that, but it has all these little knickknacks inside um, that are, you know, it's not st something I'm going to frame and put on the wall, but when I open the disc, it kind of just, I don't know, it gives me a sense of pleasure. And Criterion is really good at doing that on certain releases. So I think they really nailed it here. And uh, yeah, fantastic cover. Yeah, I, I definitely gave that one some pretty strong consideration. You can almost feel the sawdust falling you know, through your fingers, uh, the carny barkers in the background. <laughs> just kind of this, kind of, <laughs> like you say, kind of beat up, dragged around, this kind of survivor almost, this packaging. So, yeah, I, very nice choice. Yeah, and I want, want to credit the artist, too, is Raphael Garoni. 
All right, that was Aaron's bit. Brad, let's get it over to you. And what was your favorite art as a, as an artist yourself? I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on what you selected for us today. Um, so mine uh, is uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, going all the way back into uh, the first release, I think, of the year in it January. Was, yep. um, by an artist, Abigail Giuseppe. Um, I, I don't know that I have such a, a, a breakdown as Jordan. That was amazing, Jordan. <laughs> um, all the different layers of that Athelma and Louise release. But I'm, this is sort of my wheelhouse. This is what I'm drawn to. Um, I think this is a, a handmade image. You can really see uh, individual strokes, brush strokes um, on this cover. And it is just, I mean, this film in a nutshell, the uh, red curtains, the uh, proscenium framing, device of the film itself right where we're hearing about munchausen's life as if he's telling us when he's on stage regaling his adventures to the audience and the entire beauty of that film the the high baroque style um is for me so well encapsulated in this image with um with uh john neville as the Baron himself in the middle, um, with his uh, grossly oversized hat, <laughs> uh, giving us the film title, um, and uh, Robin Williams and the other actress uh, escapes me at the moment. But um, as the sort of like floating severed heads that are on the moon, and Uma Thurman as uh, the birth of Venus in the middle, um, it's I just this is my my wheelhouse. I just love ostentatious baroque over-the-top style there's a little bit um throughout the package uh that abigail gives us uh, particularly his uh famous image of him riding the cannonball which is the story in all the the iterations of baron munchausen um and some visual flourishes and stuff on the disc but um i just love this cover i just love uh how terry gilliam it is how baron munchausen it is um and i think she really knocked out of the park very nice. Yeah, that was a great selection. And yeah, it was the first release of the year, and I was very delighted. And having seen your artwork online, Brad, I can definitely see how these align, you know, with all the things going on, <laughs> all the characters and adventure, the, the, all the eye-catching details. So so thanks for that. Definitely. definitely. All right, Josh, what was your favorite uh, cover package of the year? Yeah, you know, I think um, while there's so many really gorgeous images and uh, – uh, I think there are some really neat packaging in it. To me, I'm drawn uh, to, and it may be unfair to some of the others, but I'm drawn to the Pasolini 101 uh, package Thanks. and cover. I really, uh, uh, before we even get to the packaging, um, I really love the uh, just the image that we have on the the cover. We've got the the image of Pasolini, uh, the uh, the photograph of him and, uh, then you've got the geometric designs behind him arranged as a, uh, a, an icon as a, a religious icon, uh, as a halo. Uh, but they're made up of the, uh, the images and stills from his films. Um, uh, there's some things that are reminiscent of the Teorema release from a few years ago in the, the ways that uh, the designer would use, um, again, geom geometry to help um, uh, with the designs. Um, so I love that the, the use of the, the, 
the shapes and the uh, the images again to create this this almost blasphemous image um, on the cover. That uh, if you're not really paying attention, if you don't know Pasolini's work, it's not something that you're going to uh, immediately. Um, it's not going to immediately come to mind to you, uh, but I, I work with religious images every day for work, and so to me, it's just as uh, it's a fantastic uh, uh, image. There, uh, I love the uh, the inside books, um, both the one that holds all of the discs in place, um, mm. and uh, the uh, the images that are created for each of the uh, uh, for each of the the films. Um, I think of the, the Mama Roma image and the way that uh, Anna Magnani is split in two. Um, the, uh, the Gospel according to Matthew with the, the image of Christ uh, in the lower half looking up. I mean, there, there's so many um, really gorgeous, gorgeous uh, images uh, throughout that um, I'm, I'm really struck by throughout. Uh, again, using geometry, using um, fragments, and I think this is a, a really great example of what you can do with simple, or not simple, but with uh, the use of still images in graphic design, and um, you're not just taking the still image and slapping it on the, the cover, but you're really um, making use of them in a, a really artistic way. And uh, we've got a great booklet that uh, is is full of fantastic essays and uh, uh, writings from Pasolini himself. Uh, this is to me just the the package of the year. Yeah, and I think yeah, just in terms of sheer sumptuousness, you're right. This is the one that <laughs> has all the advantages. Let's just say they they invested quite a bit in putting this little piece together, and so yeah, I think it's a very worthy uh, selection. And we will definitely be talking about Pasolini 101 as we get a little further into the podcast. So and the color Josh. palette, I just yes. I just jump in really quick yeah. say that restrained, dusty color palette that sort of all leans toward olive is just is really sophisticated and lovely. Um, yeah. Yes, very, very nice. All right, well, my, my uh, favorite packaging of the year is the Lars von Trier's Europe Trilogy. It's pretty. It's a pretty basic design, and I'm not going to be able to articulate uh, with great nuance, you know, the, 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 the factors that caused me to select it. Some of the uh, illustrations and, and some of the more eye-catching covers have already been named, and I kind of gave each of them some thought myself. But I went with the Lars von Trier Europe Trilogy because... Sort of as I said earlier, this does feel like an old school Criterion package. It's, each film has its own individual digipack. That's that's a unique thing these days, as far as box sets are concerned. I also just like the way that they match the color palette of the uh, covers to the kind of the tones of each of the films, and uh, just the fact that you know we we got a nice booklet. Yeah, we, we just got the, all the hallmarks of a of a very classy well-assembled, lovingly curated uh, box set. Uh, The last one, the Pasolini 101, was produced or directed, designed by Eric Skillman, uh, one of the in-house guys at Criterion. And Fred Davis, he's been a pretty prominent contributor. I don't think he's a Criterion employee the same way that Eric Skillman is, but he's definitely got upwards of 20-plus covers to his credit. He's one of their go-to.
go-to guys, and he's the one who put this together. And I just, you know, it's not a fancy or, or you know, knock-your-socks-off type of cover or, or imagery, but it fits the films very well, and I just I appreciated the attention to detail and, again, putting each film in their own little digipack uh, just as a, nice, as a nice touch. So I wanted to give a little shout-out and hopefully maybe recommend and encourage more of that type of packaging style from Criterion going forward. So that's our favorite covers and packaging of the year. Now we get into the main event here, which is our favorite films, going in a kind of an ascending order, starting with our favorite number three. Jordan, I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us about your third selection for the year. Before I go into my number three, I'll just preface it by saying that I will try not to spoil too much in my picks this year about plot, etc., because I watched each of these knowing very little, and I felt quite rewarded by that. And these aren't the most obvious releases on my list. Uh, they're all sort of fairly recent releases. So I may not say as much as I have typically done in past years, as I just don't want to spoil it for people. Um, they may not have seen them yet. But my number three is the Janus Contemporaries October 23 release, No Bears, um, written, directed, produced, and starring Jafar Panahi. And as we know, um, Panahi has been the victim of much harassment and censorship and arrest and imprisonment um, in his native country of Iran. Uh, the regime has banned him from making films or leaving the country. And while under house arrest in 2011, he was able to start this new journey uh, with cinema where he kind of smuggles his creativity out in, in, in ways, um, literally sometimes smuggling films out and uh, notoriously a birthday cake to get it to uh, sites for international screenings. Um, and that 2011 film was um, literally titled, This Is Not a Film. And uh, <laughs> so he has continued to try... I'm not breaking the rules. <laughs> this is something else. Right. And I think the regime, I don't understand too much about how all this works, how he's even able to do things like that without um, punishment. But um, the, the regime calls them his films products or something like that to try to kind of stay within the confines of their own rulings. Mm. But he's he, he continues to, to negotiate with, the, with these bands and, and find a way to continue to make films. Yes, films. And um, while I um, had a lot of respect for This Is Not a Film and celebrated that it existed and celebrated um, his defiance, you know, as, as, a, as a, a cinematic experience, um, it was probably not as uh, as revelatory um, as as his new film to me. I mean, if you really want to see something exquisite, I think No Bears is a, is a really good place to go. Um, a film that he completed uh, in uh, May of twenty twenty two, less than two months before he was arrested and imprisoned again. Um, so it certainly is an ongoing um, battle that he's waging um, with with not only his creativity but but his life. Uh, so. Um, Panahi in No Bears plays a fictionalized version of himself. And so he's also kind of uh, working out some of this political and personal struggle um, through the narrative of this new film, No Bears. And, and this fictionalized version of himself is also trying to make a film. He's trying to direct a film remotely that is being shot you know, just over the border in Turkey. He is relocated from Tehran to a rural village just on the other side of the border. And you know the magnetic tension of that geographic delineation just vibrates through the film. Um, there's a powerful sequence where he secretly visits the boundary under the cover of night and and he's 
he's physically frightened, you know, by its invisible and incoherent yet emphatic finger just pushing him back. Um, and he gets into other trouble um, uh, with the locals who believe that he's taken a photograph that can be used as evidence in a dispute over a woman who has been assigned to one man but potentially um, it has taken another. So this film asks a lot of questions about ownership of people, ownership of images, ownership of expression, ownership of land that, again, are personal but also global. You know, the personal to Panahi, the personal to the women and men of Iran, and they're relevant to all of us. Uh, and it has a an ending, I think, that perfectly punctuates its own convictions um, and its audacity in a poetic and very satisfying way. Incredible movie. Highly recommended. Wonderful. All right. Well, time for Aaron's segment, and uh, we'll get that in there. All right, Aaron, what was your number three favorite Criterion release of 2023? So uh, going with the 4K upgrade, uh, what's my third number? My third pick is um, One False Move by Carl Franklin, written by this, uh, this really obscure 90s guy named uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, you might have heard he likes mashed potatoes. Uh, he likes a lot of food stuff. That's kind of his thing. But no, um, One False Move, also a great cover. And um, and actually, I had, I had bought the imprint set. Uh, they had this post-noir set, and this movie was in it. And that was my first time watching One False Move. Um, and I fell in love with it. I actually watched it twice. And then the, the Criterion came out. And you know, as I said, I'm embracing the upgrade. Uh, I, I upgraded, or I bought the Criterion as an upgrade to the um, the imprint set. And I uh, watched it again, and um, and some of you know we had this project called Cine Journeys, and we had a fun thing with Noir Ember, and David, you remember that as well. Oh, for uh, appreciated sure. Appreciated yeah. your your participation, but this this one was uh, of of all the films we all the noir films. This was in the post noir chapter. Um, all the noir films. It was the one that people the the fewest people had seen, and it was the one that more people appreciated, and really. We're kind of even surprised it got made because it's so serious. Um, but it's well, it's really really serious, and then it's comical, and then it's serious again. And um, and you, you don't really see noirs or post noirs um, like that uh, with that. Uh, I don't want to give away any plot points, but uh, just there is a big secret uh, that's being kept that that is revealed uh, later. And um, and yeah, it just conveys small town reality. Uh, for, Contrasted with LAPD, PD, um, you know their their more procedural um, 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 investigations and uh, great performance by Bill Paxton, the R.I.P. Bill Bill Paxton, and actually yes, Billy Bob Thornton too. Um, you know it's no no surprise that he could act and um, uh, and yeah he, he he played a really really uh, ruthless uh, character here. Uh, along with his his partner as well, it, it's actually not for the squeamish. So if you have, haven't seen it, there are some some scenes in here that will be a little cringe-inducing. But no, I, I fell in love with it again, and actually just hearing all the other takes and everybody else falling in love with it, and also um, there was something that uh, that Jill had shared about the uh, of the final act and a decision that had to be made that actually made me like it more because uh, it could have been more of a statement on. Um, on you know rural um, times and slavery and that sort of thing, so really tr- tremendous movie, and, and it also is one of the rare '90s films to really well, um, really in- incorporate the race element in it, 
very complicated but also respectful way. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I just love this movie, and I was had great experiences uh, going back through it this this uh, November. Yeah, it was really interesting to me because I had not really heard about this movie at all when it was first announced, and it's like, wow, this obscure '90s crime thriller thing getting a 4k like does it really is it worthy of that you know and uh yeah you're right i was i was pretty blown away as well and especially considering that this was originally kind of envisioned as a straight to video kind of get your foot in the door for a lot of the people involved in making the film that was one of the things i kind of discovered in our sin and journeys conversation as well you know billy bob thornton definitely went on to become you know pretty notable presence like you said at the beginning there in the 90s and uh and yet yeah, he was a nobody at this point. He was just kind of, you know, just a mm. scrambler, just trying to get 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 going in the industry. And this really was a kind of a breakout for him. So yeah, very impressive film, and uh, a great a great pick by Criterion to kind of give this one the higher profile that it clearly deserves. Yeah. Also, Carl Franklin, second film in the collection, and the other one is also a four K. Yep. So yeah, glad to have him. You know, com- good company there. Devil yep. in Blue Dress. Brad, tell us about your number three film for the year. Um, so my number three film is The Watermelon Woman by uh, Cheryl Dunny. Um, this is a film from um, 1996. Um, and so this is a film is very reminiscent, reminiscent of the like really low budget do-it-yourself indies of the 90s and has that, that charm and appeal and feel to it. Um, and this is a film um, that is... I love because it's it's so um, investigative. Uh, Cheryl Dunny is really is trying to f- investigate her using cinema to investigate her own identity and her own sort of place in film. She is a black lesbian filmmaker, and she has made a film about a a video store clerk and aspiring black lesbian filmmaker trying to find a uh, black lesbian his uh, actress in cinema so she's scanning through cinema history trying to find um herself right trying to find her own identity trying to find some place in the past that she can go from as herself uh, uh in the modern as a modern day filmmaker right some uh, an inspiration um and so it has all of those sort of levels to it of her <coughs> searching within cinema itself to find herself and at every turn it conflicts with um her girlfriend so she has a white girlfriend that she's dating i can't remember if she's a customer at the video store or works at the video store but um but uh every single revelation that she makes in her hunt for this um this actress in the past sort of conflicts and and is a mirror against her own relationship with her white girlfriend who does have would have more cinema references in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think this is, I saw this film on the channel when it premiered, um, was it about a year ago? I can't remember. I remember talking to Josh about it actually once um, on his podcast, and I just have loved it ever since. I, it was just, um, I love uh, how it's looking at cinema past, um, trying to find uh, voices that have not been heard, um, and also, I love how it recreates um, uh, the images of the past, like the silent films and the stills, and combines that and intermixes it with uh, footage shot in the 90s. How, you know, 
that has 90s have a certain look right with the technology used then versus the the technology of the 1930s um i just think this is such an important uh film uh that has been sort of talked about really i've I've heard it in pop culture just referenced here and there very recently and it's great to see uh this film sort of vaulted and uh um and a lot of people discovering it yeah you you're you're putting it on the list bumped it up a little higher in my queue i was going to get to it eventually i was like well let me check that out that that woman you talked about the, the white woman she was a customer in the story but she was the screenwriter for American Psycho. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So, and and uh, Guinevere Turner is her name. So she went on to have kind of a, you know, maybe she's done other acting as well, but uh, just learned a little bit about her. That was just a fascinating little sort of connection there. So, but yeah, great recommendation, Brad. And, and I have heard the same, uh, even here in Grand Rapids. Uh, people have mentioned maybe screening it at our local film society. like, well, maybe we'll give it a shot and see how it goes, you know? So Definitely. Looking ahead. So thanks for the, the, the plug and the recommendation. Josh, turn it over to you. Yeah. Uh, so my my first recommendation uh, in the number three slot is, uh, like Jordan, uh, a more recent film, uh, this made a lot of people's lists for best film of the year, and I just caught it this year because of the uh, the Criterion release and uh, absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, it is This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection by Limohong Jeremiah Mosis. Um, this is an absolutely gorgeous film. Um, it is uh, painterly. The cinematography is just outstanding. Uh, Criterion did an amazing job with the uh, Blu-ray release. Uh, it is the. It's crafted like a fable, um, and uh, it is set in the uh, the landlocked uh, nation of Lesotho. Um, and, uh, it is, uh, about a woman whose son is killed in a mining accident. And, uh, after she buries him, a government representative comes in and, uh, lets the village know that a dam is going to be built and their village is going to be destroyed. And she refuses to move. Uh, she decides that she's going to stand against the dam uh, because this is where her ancestors are buried and uh, she encourages the community to fight as well. Um, it's just a, an absolutely powerful film uh, and uh, I just I found it an absolutely uh, heartbreaking, moving, beautiful, poetic film. Um, it 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 was an early, early film that just got me uh, really excited about this year's uh, crop of Criterion releases. Uh, I really love that uh, there is a new audio commentary on the disc, uh, and the commentary is fantastic. It's really insightful. It has a lot of really great information about um, the, the working process, the, the meaning behind things and, uh, just what it took to produce, uh, this film, um, away from, uh, some of the conveniences of a lot of a mod of a modern film shoot. Uh, it also has 
short films by Mosis, uh, along with a, an hour long essay film. So whenever I can get, uh, short films, uh, uh, early work, uh, paired with a, a film to me, it just feels like a really robust package. So I, I think that sometimes these, these current releases are, are often overlooked, um, in favor of the, the, art house classics but this is a really comprehensive package and uh, i think this is a lovely film yeah and and i definitely echo what you say about those short films i, I have watched the main feature we're going to be f- showing it here in grand rapids i think in february we've got a screening signed up for that so really excited to see that in the theater with an audience big screen and all that but you're right the, the inclusion of those short films really gives you a portrait of the filmmaker at this stage of their career and and so yeah you also mentioned art house classics so that's where I'm going to go with my number three, which is the one of the more recent releases, uh, The Red Balloon and Other Stories, five films by Albert Lamarie. So that is almost, even though it's not uh, you know, serious highbrow cinema on the level of you know Fellini, Kurosawa, and Bergman, etc., it is uh, definitely an art house classic. And I'm talking about The Red Balloon in particular, one of the most charming, magical, short subjects, uh, kind of filmed along t- around the same time as the early French New Wave. Uh, he wasn't really a new wave director, but he really was. Albert Maurice, I'm talking about the director, was a very unique character uh, and, and, and an artist on his own right who, who specialized in making kind of lighthearted films for children. And so perhaps this selection on my part is a little reflection of where I'm at in life because I am a grandfather. And that's a pretty big piece of my sort of day-to-day, week-to-week experience of life at these days. And and I did watch The Red Balloon with my uh, two my older grandchildren. I've also got two grandkids who are infants, so a little, little early for them yet. But uh, I had The Red Balloon on with my five-year-old uh, granddaughter. And, you know, she was just running around the house playing around. But, but it caught her eye, and she started following what this little red balloon was doing. I just delight with the fact that I can share this type of film and, and others in this package with these kids as they continue to grow up. And that was really a, a, the discovery part of it, because uh, I was familiar with The Red Balloon and White Mane, which is another kind of prominent title in this collection here. But the other ones were very entertaining. Bim the Little Donkey is a very charming story with some interesting kind of cultural stuff going on, because it's set in kind of the, the Middle East. Um, and then the the two later films, uh, the, the Circus Angel, which was really a pretty... A wacky slapstick type of comedy very sketchy and it, and it kind of just goes all over the place in very unpredictable directions uh was really a lot of fun i mean i laughed very robustly uh at, at throughout the film because i was just really delighted and surprised with just the physical comedy and the pranks and sort of the silliness of it all uh and then the other one uh stowaway in the sky uh very impressive um you know low budget aerial photography that's about a balloon that kind of goes on this magic adventure like not a not a red balloon but a hot air balloon uh and it's just again very captivating these are very rewatchable films they don't ask a lot of your time uh but i just really love the the package and also the the insight the look at this filmmaker who you know was a pretty driven guy he he had some success but he didn't make a lot of money at this but he had this passion for filmmaking that drove him uh and you know his, his period of of cinema was was fairly brief uh about 14 years i guess is the range of of the titles here but really only five main feature films and maybe he did a few other shorts along the way so i haven't really exhausted or explored the entire package yet but 
I was just so captivated by by the fun and the the delight of of watching these films, some of which I knew, and and they look great. The the the, the, the restorations are are really clean and crisp and clear. So, uh, a very quality, uh, family friendly edition from the Criterion Collection. Uh, that's my number three for the year. Yeah, David, yeah. I'll just say that uh, I I ended up getting this set for my nephews. Oh yeah for christmas um and uh uh, i'm very excited to be able to share these types of films with uh family so yeah i think this is a great release excellent yes yeah we're on the same wavelength there all right jordan let's kind of keep it rolling though favorite number two what do you got for us my favorite number two is another janice contemporaries release from november of this past year um called The Eight Mountains, written and directed by Felix von Groningen, and um, also written and directed by Charlotte Vandermeersch. And they are a romantic uh, couple in life. Uh, Vandermeersch was an actress in several of his previous projects. I think listeners might remember um, Groningen directed Broken Circle Breakdown um, and the English-language film Beautiful Boy. And this one is in Italian. In fact, um, both Groningen and Vandermeers learned Italian, um, at least enough of Italian, in order to make this film in Italy um, with an Italian crew and Italian actors. And it is breathtaking. Um, It's an epic, decades-long journey about male friendship set against the towering mountain vistas of Italy and Nepal. the film explores um, sometimes hard and mournful questions about the connectivity of relationships, but it also celebrates, you know, the absolute resilience of some friendships and has this continuous and irrepressible gentle warmth to it. And it's a very long film, um, but it just, it draws you in and, 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 and holds you. Um, it asks about, um, I'm not, I'm not going to get too much into plot, but you know, some of the more general themes here is it asks about asks about circumstantial relationships versus ones that might appear more inevitable you know and permanent relationships versus temporary ones connections that sustain time despite seeming incongruities and individual destiny and roaming lives and questions about who really knows you and why and what unnameable things do they understand about you and how fragile is that knowledge you know how do you nurture it you know do you actively try to hold on to it and if you loosen your grip does it better remain or does it transform without you um and that's uh, mostly about the two main characters but also um the father of one of them um also uh, fits into those descriptions it is shot somewhat counterintuitively in in academy ratio uh uh so when we aren't in close-up with our characters, uh, Pietro and Bruno, you know, we get this sensuous landscape photography of these unpopulated, silent, unmoving plains of rock and greenery, but all in this sort of like square format, um, painted with the the the, the, the crescent clouds and this seemingly impervious light, uh, and they've got these me- melancholy songs from this guy named Daniel Norgan. I don't know his work, but. Um, he was going to score the film is my understanding and they kind of got cold feet about it and for a while wasn't going to be part of the project and then he ended up um, agreeing to give the filmmakers songs he'd already written and so they sort of transformed their vision away from having a traditional score to using songs with lyrics and it adds something kind of unexpected the 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 
film does feel like it it would almost require a more symphonic traditional score but instead you've got these um these these kind of melancholy singer songwriter pieces that uh, contribute throughout and 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 really add to this sense of or this battle right between this sense of impermanence and yearning butting heads with this intrepidness and this solidarity um pietro and bruno are uh, childhood friends who grew up to be very unlikely adult companions, but I mean, true uh, life partners in a way, you know, connected in ways that are at least as ineffable as the light on the mountains. And the performances by uh, Luca Marinelli and Alessandro Borghi uh, will remain inside you long after the film ends. This, this could easily have been my favorite of the year. In fact, it was my favorite of the year until last week <laughs> when I saw the one that kind of scooted just north of it. Uh, but that's my number two. The Eight Mountains. Well, it's very fresh in my memory because we, we just watched it last night, and I was really, really impressed. And I feel like, yeah, something's been planted in me that's going to be kind of, you know, festering for a while in in a good way, you know, yeah. just because of the, the 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 journey that these these boys that we first meet, you know, go through over the course, like you say, of decades. It's a very very thought provoking, uh, very emotionally moving film. It's like at least how I found it. So yeah, it was a great pick, and I, one of my sons got it too uh, for me as a Christmas gift. So it just kind of came into my hands recently, and I said I got to check that out. So yeah, a very nice recommendation. Fantastic. I want to read that book too that it's based on. Yeah, 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 and I, I thought the music really did add something to it as well. I, I, you know, they don't give you the lyrics. I don't think in the subtitles. I didn't turn them on, but uh, yeah, th- there's just that sort of that melancholy, haunting feel to it that that adds some extra texture. So yeah, a lot going on there. But, but a very impressive film. All right, Aaron, let's go ahead and move on. Tell us your number two pick for 2023 releases from the Criterion Collection. So my number two pick is uh, drumroll. Uh, Inland Empire, which is David Lynch, of course, as a lot of people know. And uh, who doesn't love a David Lynch film? Um, well, okay, a lot of people don't love David Lynch films, but <laughs> <laughs> but the people that like David Lynch films really, really like them. And this one was special to me in other ways because I actually saw this in the theaters. And, um, and wow, what a tough movie to see in the theaters, I'll just be honest. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and then I, but I, I, I did enjoy it. I didn't remember a thing uh, from it. Um, <laughs> but I bought the DVD, uh, of the re- DVD release, uh, I think maybe 2006, 2007, I forget when it came out. And um, didn't really expect to revisit it too often because it has that, that lo-fi thing going on. And when I he- heard there was a 4K restoration, I, I, I was just kind of thinking um why you know it's basically it's like the anti 4k it's almost 0k um right and and i actually i kind of appreciated the the filmmakers uh choices here because uh david lynch actually did they they did do a 4k restoration and they did uh, make some of the scenes that um that were not as um uh i guess not as um what's the word Beautiful, for lack of a better word. Watchable. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watchable, even, yeah. They made those, uh, you know, like really, really shine, actually. But, you know, kind of like, you know, you can't make a copy of a copy of a copy. It still had that, um, you know, that, that kind of like uh, maybe 60 millimeter or video or whatever it was um, feel. But it just, yeah, still that kind of halo around the characters, you know, kind of that. It's not mm-hmm. like a sharp image. You'll never get that crisp, you know, clarity that we're used to in the 4K era. Yeah. 
Exactly. So there was only a little bit of an increase, um, maybe maybe more of a, more than a little, but it really made the film um, even that much more enjoyable. Again, I still couldn't tell you what happened or how it happened. Uh, you know, I, we're thinking about a David Lynch thing for Cinder Journeys, but um, I don't know. That's that's a uh, pretty intimidating. But I, I I did love it, and I loved. Uh, not, there's not a, always a lot of special features on Lynch discs, uh, but the ones on this one I, I did enjoy as well. So great. Um, great experience and a pretty essential addition i mean they they're pretty close to having the full lynch lineup there's a couple titles you know you know kind of notoriously still sitting out there straight story while at heart but uh yeah we'll, we'll see what happens dune. down the road dune and, david and dune yeah <laughs> well well yeah seems like arrow's got pretty much the definitive take on that at least for a while unless uh, they want to hand the rights over but but yeah inland empire seems like that was the missing big one uh, as far as criterion's uh, lineup is concerned so yeah excellent pick and i know it's going to be right up there on a lot of people's list as well and now let's go over to Brad. Brad, was it your number two favorite of the year? Um, so I don't want to steal too much of the uh, thunder that's <laughs> going to come later. Um, but my number two pick was the Bahasalini box set, um, which we talked a little bit about with Josh. But um, I, I mean, I love Pasolini, and I feel that this is uh, the missing link for the rest of him, right? So we yes. have all of his films now. Mm-hmm. They're all in... Is there anything missing? I don't think so. No, With... I think this is pretty comprehensive. There might be yeah. a few little little s- snippets or shorts maybe that he did somewhere here or there, but this feels like it's it's the whole thing plus the stuff that's already been released. Yeah. Right, right. And you can see through this the sort of natural transition from um, the Italian neorealist days with his early films, Acetone, uh, Mama Roma, <clears throat> and uh, how he's... He he transitioned to be not that he wasn't playing abstractly, but even more abstract, um, and even more doubling down in how much he's marrying modern culture, um, politics of sexuality, and uh, his Roman Catholicism, um, and twisting it, and and always shining new interesting points of view and light and even as he spread out from just focusing on italy right with those things to delving into greek plays um which would take us naturally into you know his trilogy of life where he looked at you know english literature and islamic literature into you know salo right so i feel like this is just such a complete uh, missing piece of the pasolini puzzle he is like one of our greatest Enfant Terribles we have in cinema, especially in European cinema. Um, and I think this is just essential. Um, yeah, one of the greats. Yeah, I'll have a few things more to say about that, Brad. But but you're right, you, you hit all the high points. Uh, it's my number one. I'll do a little spoiler there. But uh, I got a few more thoughts to add on to that. So let's go ahead and move it along to Josh. What was your number two for the year? Yeah, my number two was the two films by Marguerite Duras set that came out. Um, this has, uh, the two films that are in the set are India Song and Baxter, Vera Baxter. Um, these are two films that never left me after I watched them. Part of it may have been the hypnotic music that plays in the background of each of the films and that just repeats over and over again. Um, but part of it is is her patient style. It is the the way that uh, she uh, 
really creates this hypnotic state that you enter into as you're watching these films. Uh, these these movies really, uh, I was just transfixed by. Um, you know, Marguerite Dura was uh, a a writer, uh, a a really significant part of the French New Wave that. Uh, she isn't talked about as much as a lot of the directors uh, there. She wrote last year at Marion Bad, though. Uh, she wrote uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour. So she's she's someone who has worked with a lot of the uh, with Alain Rena especially, uh, and as she directed her own work, um, she fell into this really um, abstract. Uh, very, uh, very surreal state uh, with her films, and um, you know, India Song explores colonialism and the effects of colonialism on the the colonizers and how that uh, really uh, destroys the the individuals. Uh, Baxter Vera Baxter is this uh, probing. Uh, uh, look into the heart of a woman uh, and into this 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 relationship and into the the interior lives of women and there's so many ways to read it uh, I just I absolutely love these films uh, I think that there are layers that uh, I'm excited to keep uncovering as I uh, revisit these films um, these films also have uh, alternate audio tracks. There is uh, a documentary, a portrait of Dora. Uh, there are interviews. Um, Delphine Sarig, uh, one of the great French actresses, uh, she is uh, in both films, and uh, she's really magnificent. Um, I just I love these films, and uh, they're they're challenging watches. Um, and to me that, that uh, if I can be challenged, if I can be, uh, uh, if, if it, if there's something that I feel like I'm, I'm working towards as I'm watching something, I, I feel like I've, I've gained something after the, the viewing. So, uh, I love these films. Yeah. You mentioned Delphine Serig and she's of course, you know, the, the central figure of Jean Dillman, the, the greatest film ever made <laughs> with the sight and sound pole and all of that. But you know, she, it does, it does make me feel good to see that her profile is being elevated because she really is a very, um, it's just a very exquisite and capable um, artist and actress. So she she's mm. very adventurous. The roles that she took on uh, can't be silly stuff like uh, uh, William Klein's Mister Freedom, the, f the films we've already mentioned here. Uh, it's it's just nice to see her maybe getting her due a little bit, or you know, not that maybe she was ignored or or taken for granted in the past, but uh, yeah, it's 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 good uh, that that Marguerite Dura and Delphine Seyrig are getting this showcase. So I appreciate you bringing it. I have not gotten to these films. I've kind of sampled them just to kind of get the vibe. And it's like, yeah, these feel like films I'm really going to need to settle into and, and really focus on, you know, put my phone away <laughs> and, and really yeah, exactly. dig in, you know, and, and just, and go on that journey w with the director and the actor. So very intriguing. Yeah. I definitely need to make a priority to, to get that one in that set in. 
All right. Well, my number three is the Renown Westerns. I received this as a review copy from the Criterion Collection. They sent me the 4K box set. I was extremely grateful for that. And so, of course, you know, I got a review. I better dig in and, and get into it. And wow, what a what a wonderful experience that was. Uh, that kind of came out during the summer. And so I did a fair amount of movie watching to not only get into the films themselves, you know, five pretty pretty efficient, pretty crisp and brisk Western stories that were, you know, wouldn't maybe call revisionist in the same sense that they were maybe from the 90s forward, but subversive, certainly. They just had that little twist to them. Uh, some of them a little bit more on the comedic side, but mostly pretty serious stuff, uh, all within a very nice 85-minute time frame. Um, and the, you know the, the restorations and the visual images and just the pristine quality really jumped off the screen at me. And so, you know, these were a discovery. I, I know that a lot of folks had the was it the indicator set that came out a few years ago. Uh, I think Aaron even mentioned it when I was talking to him. And that one, that that older set, which was a Blu-ray only, had a lot more of the bells and whistles with the packaging, postcards, and you know maybe just a little bit more of an impressive thing to sit on your shelf. But I, I got a lot of things to sit on my shelf these days, so I, I like sort of the more concise type of package that this came in. Uh, and and since it was a 4K Blu-ray kind of dual format package, I was able to really do some comparisons between Blu-ray, which looked great, but the 4K really popped, and I so I. I just I just had a very memorable experience really immersing myself in the films and also the this director Bud Bedecker uh, who was a name I had heard a little bit about and knew he had a little had a bit of a reputation but really getting into his work and what a unique individual he was I mean he he went down to Mexico taught himself to be a bullfighter and he was not this you know big swaggering guy but he just had that sense of adventure he made a lot of different types of movies if these are the the films that really kind of cemented his reputation and made him i guess what you'd call influential uh in subsequent decades but uh it was you know for me if i look back on on the uh, the year of criterion watching this was absolutely one of my highlights and so a set that i had no really choice other than to say yeah this was my number two of the year all right, so Aaron, I understand you have a few things I wanted to say about my number two pick, the renowned Western. So why don't you give us your shot? Yeah, this is kind of like what I said about uh, Inland Empire is that I had had the regular, you know, the, the old, um, you know, 2009, not really. I think it was like 2018 Blu-ray of, um, of the, um, the Bud Bedeker and uh, Randolph Scott set from Indicator. And I had watched that um, a couple years ago and I really kind of, I really enjoyed it. I basically binged all five, I believe it was, on that set, and loved the movies. Loved the uh, I love Randolph Scott as a western. He's not your typical typical leading man. Um, you know, I kind of see him as like a, a Robert Ryan, kind of like an everyman. And um, and yeah, I, they're not the best best movies, but they're really really enjoyable to watch. And so also in 4K, uh, you know, that's not something you would think would really, uh, uh, you know. You know, there's not a lot to upgrade on 4K, but it still looks uh, really, really terrific. And um, and I'm really glad that Criterion embraced these films and released the set. So recommend people check it out. So yeah, that was that was my number two. So let's go ahead. All right, we are here in the uh, not the final round. We'll have a little wrap up conversation, but this is kind of the the peak moment here. Uh, what is your number one of the year, Jordan? Well, emphasis on peak uh, for for both my final two choices. 
Uh, my favorite uh, of the year is Godland, uh, written and directed by Hilner Palmason. It is a Icelandic and Danish production. Um, like the Eight Mountains, it is a optical wonderland and atmospheric marvel. Like there, there are several points of of connection um, that one can draw to the Eight Mountains. Um, they're pretty different films, but it does make sense that Criterion released them both on the same day, um, both as Janus contemporaries. They were both 2022 films um, that I think reached only wide American distribution this year. So I think Godland is popping up on some top 10 lists this year, but some critics are excluding it because they saw it at film festivals the previous year. But um, I've never heard of this filmmaker before um, this film. I guess he's made two other features in a series of shorts. But I'm very happy to make the acquaintance. Um, the The procession of images here uh, just left me stunned, um, as, as well as this carefully sculpted soundscape. And, and the approach to narrative, which is just so organic, you know, it just feels like manicured in a, in a very spontaneous way. You know, it isn't intellectually driven. Um, and there's a real sense that each moment is fresh and like the next moment has yet to be born. And it might be partly a product of the fact that, because um, I think the filmmaker did work on this for many, many years. I think he started writing it and even filming some sequences because there's some time-lapse um, if you can even call them time-lapse, but there's there's sequences that take advantage of shots that progress over a long period of time that I think he started shooting in 2013. So mm. it, this was not an impulsively made film, but part of its freshness might be that it was shot in sequence, um, as was The Eight Mountains, um, for the most part, um, barring those time-lapse sequences that I just referenced. And it's also shot in this uh, in this square format, and a very, very, very similar to the traditional uh, Academy uh, ratio 133 except that here we have um, the curved corners kind of like we might remember from a ghost story mm. so it mm. kind of looks like a slide and you get some of that texture of the you know the sort of hairs and, and other uh, detritus around the the uh, periphery of the frame um, so there's something sort of feels immediate about that too and so again despite this sort of counterintuitive approach to shooting you know, these broad landscapes in the square format. Um, I thought the cinematography um, took at least more than one stylistic cues from John Ford. You know, sometimes this felt like Iceland lensed like Monument Valley and doorways framed <laughs> like in The Searchers and community dance felt like, you know, My Darling Clementine. So um, that was that was a very interesting thing because usually when Westerns are referenced, they're referenced for a similarity in genre. And this does not feel like a Western, except for the approach to, you know, trying to survive a harsh, you know, unbridled landscape. So there is that possible connection to the, to the Western genre. Um, but, but Godland is, it is, is largely, I think about the fragility of authority and leadership and, and the tenuousness of knowledge and its ability to temporarily grant authority over someone else, you know, much to the chagrin of anyone who's overlooked for this authority, for this limited power, um, whether that be spiritual knowledge, our lead character here is a priest, um, uh, and moral knowledge or knowledge of the land that the, the priest arrives um, from Denmark in, into the harsh Icelandic landscape, and he is assigned a guide. Um, and so knowledge of the land and the weather and the animals is another arena of, of authority, um, knowledge of family and sexual knowledge, knowledge of what home is 
and and where it is and why it is and, and who says it is there's there's a lot of questions um overt and also underneath the surface about you know colonial power here uh, iceland was under the danish crown at this time and so you have this danish priest being sent to iceland to establish this new parish build this church in this danish outpost in the east of iceland but he's being aided in this uh in this uh mission by um icelandic uh locals and so you have um you have all of these, these these spheres, these different arenas in which some someone is an authority over someone else, um, and and distinct from all these, you know, pointedly distinct from even the spiritual knowledge is the knowledge of death. Death recurs in this landscape, not dramatically, but just sort of like inevitably, um, and it is it is equally about landscape and the passage of time and the jurisdiction of the seasons and those universal truths of the elements. Um, the colonialism and it is expressed in um, often linguistic terms, like the tyranny of language. We've got uh, Icelandic and Danish spoken in the film, and some characters speak only one, some speak a little of both. Um, we get subtitles of the film. Godland is presented at both the beginning and end of the film in both languages. First you get it in Icelandic, and then you get it in Danish, I believe, or it might be the opposite order. But this way of like that even the title is subject to these two different spheres of language and you know which one has control over the other um which is very interesting um so uh this was shot on film and initially i was unclear about that i was wondering are, are am i seeing filters <laughs> sort of emulating like the grain of film and that which which you see like even in a film like the florida project you know the it, they add grain they try to make it look like film even though it's shot on digital but this was shot on 35 millimeter and um and, and eventually i think it's it's pretty obvious that that's true it is really a sumptuous picture quality um another thing i'd say about this aspect ratio um is that the the main one of one of the um setups of the film which in turns out is untrue it's apocryphal that there were a series of photographs found in the east of iceland um seven of them wet plate photographs and this is like the narrative behind how those photographs were created that is told to the viewer at the beginning of the film as fact but in fact the filmmaker invented this it, there, there were no photographs um uh but the the priest carries around with him this eight by ten wooden camera and the aspect ratio of the of the photographs he's taking closely mirrors the the aspect ratio of the of the film that we're seeing so I feel like I'm doing a slightly terrible job of convincing anyone how perfect <laughs> and 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 um, and dreamy and uh, inspiring this film is. But this is this is not just my favorite Criterion of the year. I think it's the best film I saw all year. Period. You know, I've I've visited Iceland a couple times. I love Iceland, but um, you know, at the moment, I would love nothing more than to see another film by Palmason. You know, he's just he's a real visionary. I think in the same conversation, or deserves to be in the same conversation with Tarkovsky and Malik and Eggers, and just so skillful and inspired. Well, I'm holding this disc in my hand right now, and I saw him with that camera on the cover there. Um, we're having an unseasonably warm winter so far here in Michigan. I'm waiting for the snow to pile up, and I think I'll pop it in <laughs> when when we get weather that seems to match the the climate of the of this film. But I'm very eager. I've heard great things, and certainly your your comments, Jordan, really heightened my anticipation to check it out for myself. I'll be interested to hear what you think when you see it. I'll let you know. We'll have a conversation about that, all right? All right, Aaron, let's talk about your number one Criterion release of 2023. What is it? 
This was really tough, but um, I, I just went with the one that I enjoyed the most. And, and also the total package, because this was in my um, in the conversation for favorite co cover as well. But I'm picking uh, this, again, indie director named uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, who, like number, number two picked with David Lynch, seems to be getting all his films on Criterion. Um, there are a few others I would like, so that's for another conversation. But After Hours, you know, I, of course, I, that's another one. I'm aging myself here, but I saw that in theaters. And then I saw it again on, you know, cable or HBO or whatever. And so it was a film I knew rather, not rather, very well. Uh, but I hadn't seen it in a good while. And I knew the restoration was out there and was probably just a matter of time. And, um, and yeah, it was just, it's, first off, it's such a strange movie. Um, and such a, I, I kind of think that this is one of the, um, the creative turns that Scorsese t took that allowed him to become... You know, kind of this um, this filmmaker that uh, delves in, into so many different genres, um, but this is the crazy genre, and he's done a couple. I, I guess bringing out the dead, maybe I'm sure there's some others. Um, so the movie itself is is it's fun, it's crazy. You know, they they call it Kafka esque. Yes, certainly Kafka esque, and um, and also the the features were, and I'm not going to list them, but they they really they were plentiful. There were a few of them. And um, and they really enhanced the um, the uh, watching the film. There was, I believe, there was a making of documentary, and um, and that one was um, was really special too. And um, oh yeah, and of course uh, the because I nominated it for um, for some uh, some awards. Uh, there was the conversation with uh, Scorsese and Leibowitz, uh, the the writer. So um, and there was a commentary too. And I don't know how. I don't think that was a new commentary. They didn't put a date on it. But it was really, um, really great. Yeah, I just, and uh, yeah, more Scorsese go Criterion. Thank you. Um, it's been a lot lately, and I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah, Scorsese and Criterion is one of one of the main themes of this past year. Uh, but After Hours, it also had a pretty, you know, long gestation time of people waiting for it, wanting it, kind of craving and desperately hoping for it to finally be released, and then voila, it was announced, and I was like, okay, now you can cross that off your list and, <laughs> and get a new what's, what's everybody else looking forward to. And then Inland Empire, I think, is, uh, kind of fits that same mm -hmm. uh, category as well. Like, you know, when is Criterion going to finally get around to it? And here they are. They did. Yeah, and actually the, everybody that was clamoring for it all those years, uh, you know, I think they were probably satisfied. So um, I don't know what's next. Maybe Amadeus? Uh, I think that's been rumored. But yeah, that's, maybe yeah. the next uh, Asteroid City or something. I don't know. But yeah, loved <laughs> loved me some After Hours. Excellent. And now, Brad, it's your turn. Tell us, what is your number one Criterion release of 2023? Um, So <clears throat> my number one is... Uh, just one of my favorite movies uh, ever. So I've been waiting for this film for like 20 years to join the collection. Wow. Um, so it's Orson Welles' The Trial. Um, and that's why it's here at my number one, just because I love this film so much. I, since I saw it on like television before it was restored, you know, had a lot of really shifty uh, DVD releases um, here in North America. Um, but I'm so happy that uh, it's been cleaned up and it looks phenomenal. Um, I'm, it's such a missing piece of the Orson Welles puzzle for me. Um, we uh, have so much of his other stuff in the collection that this was his favorite film. This is my favorite film that he's done. And um, it is maybe like our best 
adaptation of Kafka. I think it is, isn't it? Like, mm. uh, it just so encapsulates that idea of, um, you know, never sort of like never understanding what's coming to get you or why you're, uh, you're, the more you aspire to do something, the more you're kind of like pushed back or there's, you know, seems to be systems in place that keep you where you are. Um, this is for me, just like a, a, a surreal dream or nightmare. Um, and I, I just love, um, how well shoots this as one strange giant complex that floats from one to the other. Anthony Perkins is always running around in this movie, um, seeming going from one strange uh, uh, location to another that don't seem to be related, but yet are. Um, And the world around him gets sort of more and more surreal and nightmarish as he goes through. Um, There's some great actors, not Anthony Perkins, doing his probably best role uh, since Psycho. I hope he's known you i know he won't be as known as well in psycho as he is in this but like i hope this this release really uh prop uh, like propels this performance because he's great in it um also we have uh Romy schneider uh, we have jean monroe um and we have akeem Tim- timoroff all great uh, actors that have worked as well as before um, and this release is also a wonderful, like you get the 4K and Blu-ray version, but you also get his uh, filming trial, filming the trial documentary that he made, um, so which is just uh, uh, him in front of a stage. I forget where the screening was, but it's an audience screening and it's a big, um, you know, speech and Q&A where he talks a lot about how they made the, made the trial, his his opinions of it, where he thinks um this film sort of stands in his own legacy um and he talks about himself in the larger scope of his own legacy like how what does he feel about his you know filmography and his place in it um interviews with the cinematographer and and jean monroe um and the commentary um from his biographer joseph mcbride is also really great um with great insights into again this film and its place in Wells' filmography. Um, so I just love this film to pieces, and I'm so glad that I finally got it. I was beginning to worry that I would die before <laughs> it came in the collection. Um, yes. Here I am, 43 years old. We got it. Yes, the, the grail has been found. Yeah. Well, yeah, this does feel like, on a low-key level, one of their major releases of the year. You know, For some reason, yes. it's not like yes. setting the internet on fire, but it is a pretty big deal that we've got this film, you're right, with all the extras, all the packaging, um, and yeah, just a really nice, clean edition. It is definitely a very worthy number one. All right, Josh, I want to kick it over to you. What's your number one for the year? All right. Well, my number one for the year was also my uh, favorite, top my favorite, list of favorite films for uh, 2020, and that is the uh, anthology uh, film Small Acts. Um, It consists of uh, five works um, by Steve McQueen, uh, Mangrove, Lover's Rock, Red, White, and Blue, Alex Weedle and Education. Uh, all five films um, 
look at the Windrush generation in Britain, the uh, or the the descendants of the Windrush generation as well, the uh, the West Indian um, immigrants to uh, Britain and the the racism they face, the their joys, the the activism. Uh, it looks at pivotal moments in the life of the West Indian uh, community in in Britain uh, through a series of um, essentially vignettes. Um, I know that each of the films can stand on their own, but taken together, this is a, a really monumental work that um, I think uh, the, the films inform upon one another, they build upon one another, um, so that in the first film, Mangrove, we really see the, the, the scope of the racism that, uh, these communities face. We see the injustice that they face. We see what they're fighting against. In Lover's Rock, we see the the joy that they're trying to carve out in their everyday existence. In uh, Red, White, and Blue, we see the the ways that attempts to change the system from within can be ineffective. In Alex Weedle, we see the the dawning of political consciousness. We see the attempts to move from petty crime into activism. Um, and then in education, we see that uh, the real way moving forward um, is getting out of these white systems of oppression and into um, uh, kind of forming your own groups of consciousness raising and into really reclaiming your own history. Um, and I think, again, they really build uh, one on the other. And uh, it's just, to me, a monumental work. And it's uh, fantastic. Uh, I think all of these films, the um, set includes a three-part documentary series called Uprising that also chronicles uh, much of what we see in the series. Um, there are, are you know, doc there are interviews, um, behind the scenes featurettes. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Steve McQueen's work and you see these really gorgeous moments throughout the series, the moments where he just lets his camera wait with characters, um, these moments of transcendence that come through, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, um, this is, uh, to me, one of the the, the great um, series of films, and uh, I am so grateful that uh, Criterion released it. Uh, this was released on Amazon here in the U.S., uh, so again, we have Criterion uh, ensuring that uh, this work is available um, in a uh, physical format. Uh, I did, uh, after it was released uh, on Amazon, I was frantically searching to see if I could import it from the BBC because <laughs> they did release it on DVD oh, yeah. there in, in the UK. So I was like, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a DVD set of this. Uh, but I decided to hold out and wait and see if, um, if, there would be a uh, a U.S. release, and I'm really I'm really glad uh, the their continuing partnership with Amazon has uh, has allowed for some other releases to come here. So uh, I love the series. I think this is 
this moves me every time I see it. And, uh, uh, you know, I know Lover's Rock is a high point for a lot of people, and I, I think it's justifiably so. I think that film is really transcendent. Well, I'm going to go ahead and insert a little clip from Aaron West because he had some things that this was one that kind of almost made his list, but he wanted to say a few comments about this series. So let's go ahead and roll that. All right, you wanted to, Aaron, Aaron, you wanted to say a few things about uh, Small Axe as well, which was Josh's number one pick. But go ahead and give us a few of your thoughts on uh, that uh, beautiful box set. Yeah, it, beautiful indeed. Uh, this is actually, and thank you, Josh, for picking this. I actually was having a hard time narrowing this or knocking this off my list. I actually had a tie for first place, which is totally cheating. But it was also I could get this <laughs> film uh, as my number three. But honestly, I, I I think this is where I credit Criterion. Um, you know, this is a, a modern film, or modern series of films, really, and it's um. But it's really special, and I th- I think it got its due. But you know, because of it's so ambitious, it's five films. You know, it really didn't get a lot of awards attention. Attention. It it got um you know some some top ten lists, but um but and also because it went to streaming i want to say it was Am- amazon prime that it yeah went to. it's an amazon right yeah so um the thing is those those five films are so special um no there's there are some that are better than others I, lover's rock of course i think is gonna be one of my um top uh films of the post this millennium i guess so um so yeah f- phenomenal films so glad they're on criterion they belong there um i think that years from now they'll be remembered as masterpieces so yeah great, great choice josh and i can't wait to watch this over and over again the rest of my life and then for myself you know I was, i'm holding the package here in my hands i don't see amazon even mentioned like you know usually the stripe along the bottom of all the different studios or you know people who had a, a role in putting it together so amazon must have just contracted this for their streaming service but yeah you know thinking about the sort of the the uh, extra heft or gravitas that putting it on disc provides I, I don't know if any of the supplemental features were available through the amazon streaming version of these films but you're right this looks like a very impressive set this is another one where i feel like i'm gonna have to sit down make the commitment invest myself to really you know take this all in although maybe you know maybe some of these films could be just taken in a little bit more casually and then you know caught up that way but yeah what, what do you think about uh you know the, the difference kind of like with with jordan's picks you know these these uh these streaming they're available on streaming titles but you put them on a disc you sort of memorialize them in a certain way you, you sort of elevate their status i think there is still that argument to be made that physical media just does enhance the the, the not just the quality of the film itself but but the experience of, of taking it in and giving it its due respect beyond just physical media just uh criterion spine number alone right the oh, film sure. school in a box <laughs> oh yeah uh that everyone likes to mention um and this is a great pick josh yeah well you know i think about nanny mm. uh i saw that at sundance uh last uh, two years ago and uh it's a really fantastic horror film and uh again a, a great way to make sure that it doesn't um, just disappear onto a service. I think, you know, I love streaming, uh, you know, someone who has to engage with film uh, through home media. I don't get to go see things in theaters. Um, I, I'm grateful for streaming, but streaming services are really, really terrible at 
announcing the releases of their films. They just dump them onto services. And so by putting something on a physical release, it also um, elevates the status, like you said, but it, it, it lets people know that this is something worthy of consideration beyond just a, a content filler for, for your, the price of your uh, subscription. Right. Or something that the algorithm feeds you after you've finished watching what you intended. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. things get buried so much in the algorithm, even after like how, you know, no non-celebratory they are of their day of releases, then it just gets piled on and piled on and piled on and, yep. Yep. No, nothing's nothing's t- bringing you to remember how good this is remember that how much of a place it should exist in film history and criterion's really good at that right yeah absolutely even when it doesn't have a spine number i mean like the, yeah. the contemporaries don't have right. spine numbers but there really is something when you're a collector there's something very important i think about that that individual curation, you know, like Criterion has their curation and you have yours, you know, you decide, Hey, the eight mountains is something I want to have on the shelf. I feel like that's, that's sort of a part of my imaginary landscape. Now it's part of what fuels my creativity or sense of identity and, and having it mean something. And so if the physical edition becomes, you know, a necessary way to consecrate that, whereas just knowing it's available and it's on your watch list, it's just not the same thing. Yeah, well, and and speaking of physical media, let's talk about the King Kong of this year's Criterion releases, the the big (laughs) one, Pasolini 101. So this is my turn. I know Brad's already taken a swing at it. Josh has talked about the packaging. And I will just say, you know, if if I look at the three titles or offerings that I've selected, they're all very artist-focused in terms of, you know, bringing us in touch, not just with a collection of great films, like uh, with Albert Lomaris and The Red Balloon, uh, Bud Budiker and the renowned Westerns. Of course, got to mention Randolph Scott as a very key contributor as well. But uh, Pasolini 101 is my number one of the year. And yeah, you could just say quantity and uh, you know the comprehensiveness. But to me, you know, what what really stood out, and I have I've watched all the features and a pretty good chunk of the supplements, is just the the richness and the brilliance of of Pier Paolo Pasolini, the artist. I mean, what a what a profound individual he really was. Uh, a contradiction in so many terms in terms of his allegiances his identity his interests uh, but but what really burns through and shines through all of these movies is this incredible passion for for life for expressive and creative um, you know output of just of, of really just providing uh, whatever he can to to the world, whether it's through his poetry, his prose, or as this phase of his career captures his his journey into filmmaking, and and just what a what a an incredible life he lived. Obviously, a big shadow over the tragic ending of it all, and and of course the bizarre and somewhat uh, you know I will say perverse fascination with Salo. Uh, for for so many people who just sort of gravitate to that because of its reputation and the the shock and the outrage and all of that uh, you know to me that wasn't just an indulgence you know the the way he made that film it's it's definitely it's it's off-putting it's it's you know scandalous in its own way but but what the Pasolini 101 shows is that you know th- this was growing out of a an incredibly fertile well-informed 
infinitely curious imagination and and what 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 amazed me was like how he jumped from different genres you know coming up through you know his takes on on you know classic italian neorealism but you know the hawks and the sparrows was just absolutely hilarious i just could not believe how like funny and, and amusing and entertaining that film was and his journeys into the mythology medea and oedipus rex this is like deep primal stuff that just kind of gets to the core of the human experience. These ancient stories that kind of, you know, they're already in our imaginations, even if we've never heard them before. When we do, it sort of triggers something really primal within us, you know, and, and these stories, they, they connect and they resonate across generations and centuries and millennia for reasons, because they, they touch on something really deep about just being a human and, and, and his ability to take these different styles of storytelling, of narrative, uh, his casting and just you know, getting these really intriguing actors and personalities. I mean, Maria Callas, I mean, this was kind of my initiation to, into her cult there, uh, and via Zemsky and, and, uh, Terrence Stamp and Tiarema and just, you know, just, and, and the usual cast, you know, the familiar faces, um, just it was just a really um to me very moving experience to just see how Pasolini was able to just follow his muse and execute with with such brilliance and such uh, you know such such effective power you know across across all the genres across the different styles of filmmaking that kind of captured his imagination and he would do that in a way and then move on to something else i mean in that sense i mean he kind of reminds me of a stanley kubrick in that he would just sort of apply his hand to a style or a a genre and and do something really unique and and magical with it and yeah to me again the the quality of of every single film that i watch as different as they are from each other was was really surprising and impressive he he wasn't a guy who just found his groove and just continued to plow away at it he he really diversified over the course of a career that was you know tragically all too short and you just wonder what he would have made if he'd had a chance to live longer so you know, so to me, it's not just the the sheer substance or the the lavish attention to detail of that package, but what it contains and what it communicated to me. Um, you know, I still have not watched everything in the Bergman or the Varda or the Fellini sets, but there's something about this Pasolini one on one that just really drew me in, and kept me coming back for more. And and I don't feel like I'm done with it yet. So, that's my number one of the year. Awesome. awesome. Yes. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Great pick. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and just kind of wrap up, uh, you know, not that we're going to be done in the next five, 10 minutes, but let's just kind of look ahead. Uh, and this is a time where you can talk a little bit about maybe what your predictions or wish list for Criterion would be. Maybe catch us up on what you're up to personally or what you've got going on as far as, you know, things you want to share with the community, with the folks who tune into this podcast. So uh, just looking ahead as a new 2024 is right ahead of us there, right around the corner corner jordan gonna give you the first shot at it oh thanks david uh i'll give you the personal update first so um when i'm not out surfing um i'm i'm painting or writing and i'm doing something kind of cool i think uh you guys and and some of the listeners that have been engaged in this end of the year show for a while know that i i do journalism and i'm trying a new thing out where i'm combining a journalism with painting so instead of uh, shooting photographs for my stories, I'm I'm starting to make paintings for them, 
and thinking about you know what exactly it is that a painting has to offer that a photograph does not and um, how to produce paintings in a timely enough manner that this actually makes sense and can work. Um, but I have the first one uh, finished, so I just finished the first piece, and it might it might actually uh, appeal to some of our listeners because it's it is film related. So I wrote about this uh, commercial film shoot that was shot in Portland um, with uh, Jack Quaid and Stephen Tobolowsky and David Keckner. They're doing a, a series of of. Uh, online spots for a tech company called Ubiquity, and they shot on a set called the White Cyclorama, which ended up being a pretty significant focus of the piece. I was very intrigued by this, uh, the the sort of dizzying effect of the White Psych and and what it implied about landscape. And uh, so that that piece will be up soon. It's not up yet, uh, but after the new year, it should be up on Oregon Arts Watch. So excited about that and. Uh, in terms of criterion, um, I'll stick. I'll stay on brand here. Uh, Janice Contemporaries, uh, I hope, might be releasing, uh, you know, uh, Vim Vender's film Anselm, uh, which is about the the painter, sculptor, and installation artist Anselm Kiefer that I'm sure Brad also knows. Um, this guy oh, yes. creates the German artist creates these you know monumental paintings that have you know such a sculptural finish that they are like sculptures and then he does installations and and so uh, uh vendors recently made this film in 3d like pina and janice has it and is currently you know planning to to start i guess a a u.s theatrical tour so hopefully we'll get that um as a part of Janice Contemporaries, if not a full-fledged uh, Criterion edition. Lynch Oz is another thing that might um, enter the uh, under the Contemporaries brand, or this other film, Orlando, My Political Bi- Biography, that I don't know too much about. In terms of wish lists, um, I was maybe, perhaps, over at the Kino Lorber website during their Winter Wonderland sale, and noticed that they don't have... A physical release available anymore for Tarkovsky's nostalgia. Oh yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. So it says on their on the page for nostalgia, like there's no home video release. It's not that it's out of stock; they're just not offering it. So I wonder what that might mean about its distribution rights and future Blu-ray releases or 4K releases. I hate to burst your bubble. Um, someone Uh-oh. did comment um, on CriterionForum.org that yeah. uh, that. The insider, the Kino insider, did say that they are doing a new restoration of Nostalgia. Um, so it might just be like what they kind of did with The Silence, where yeah. they had an initial version. The Sacrifice. The Sacrifice, sorry, yes. Um, yeah. They had an initial version and then did a restoration and then re-released it. Sorry. Well, but intact. <laughs> no, that's still exciting. That's still cool stuff. Yes, yeah. it is. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, and any, yeah, any other things, uh, predictions, I'm, I'm terrible at those, um, but uh, basically more Palmason. He has two other uh, films that he made before Godland and a series of shorts that are sort of sampled on one of the special mm. features. It'd be really good to be able to see yeah, those. Well, definitely. And very intrigued. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get Aaron's comments in here. All right, Aaron, what are you looking forward to in 2024 related to the Criterion Collection, movie watching? personal projects kind of give us your look ahead yeah i'm looking for well so far we know what has been announced for the early months and it seems pretty box set heavy um there's the um the romare set i've been waiting for that one for a long time uh, one of my favorite directors 
uh, lots lots more we could go on but but yeah there kind of there was a glut uh, there's a, a period in which there were very few box sets and then we got a whole bunch towards the end of this year looks like we're getting more next year so would like to see that trend continue um, and we also have Chantel Ackerman's box set and others coming so that's what I'm looking forward to uh, for Criterion um, and I'm also being a little more selective about what I buy. I probably eventually I'll buy them all, but I'm I'm buying them more to watch them and to um, enjoy them. So there are some titles, um, like The Roaring Twenties, for example. I can't can't wait to get my hands on that. But some of the um, the Janus contemporaries, I think a fire is announced. I do want to see that, and I will. But I'm not like uh, you know, I'm not gonna be. Um, that won't be a first day pre order. Uh, as far as personal projects, as you know, we have the Sinner Journeys, and we're kind of building it. I don't know when this episode will come out, but uh, things are going to move very fast beginning January 4th. Uh, you would not believe how beautiful this website's going to be. So that's a personal pro project that, you know, uh, CinemaJourneys.com. Uh, right now you won't see, right now as we're recording, you won't see a, um, a functional website, but... It's there, and it's behind the scenes, and it's going to be probably in the next couple weeks, few weeks, uh, will be uh, looking very, very gorgeous. And and we have a logo, too, which is uh, designed, I, I guess I can say, by uh, uh, renowned cover artist Caitlin Kuwald. And wow, she's been a pleasure to work with. Uh, we've been working with her since really no October, November. And she just blows us away. She's so talented. So, yeah, that's that's personal projects. But the thing is, I'll, I'll we'll try to loop in physical media. Obviously, Criterion. Um, yeah, we we did that with One False Move and some others. And you know, it gives me an excuse not only to watch the 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 great releases that they're coming out with. Like Roaring Twenties, we'll probably do an episode on. We love it that much. Um, but. Um, yeah, it just it just gives, gives us uh, more of an excuse to kind of dive in and um, experience it with others, too, which is kind of the goal of this project. Well, I'm pretty excited to be part of Cine Journeys and see where that ends up taking us, <laughs> the journey that we are all embarking on. And definitely wish you and Jill the best. I know you've been pouring a lot of energy and attention and, and just love into creating this new site, this new community. And I've really enjoyed being a part of it, these these conversations we've had. It's kind of a different way of kind of uh, kind of connecting with, with uh, our, my online cinephile community, but uh, really give you a lot of credit for creating this thing and uh, it seems like you've got ideas to take it well beyond what we've already experienced but it's been fun so far and i definitely look forward to continuing to be part of it and uh, wish you all the success yeah thanks yeah my, my old day job was in it so i've been bringing that to the table and i have some digital goodies coming so thanks and thanks for your participation in that david absolutely all right aaron well it's been good having you on we'll let you go thanks a lot for your time today all right, Brad, go ahead and fill us in. What's uh, what's happening with you, and what do you want to see Criterion up to in 2024? Sure. Um, so what's happening with me is uh, well, similar to uh, Jordan. I am also a painter, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm working on this great big um, epic piece uh, uh, right now, um, and I'm hoping to have it ready for uh, the gallery that represents me by the end of 2024. So as far as, like, Painting goals, that's my sort of main huge thing. Um, but uh, this year, uh, 2023, I have been in four, uh, sorry, three galleries, four shows. Uh, there were two shows in one gallery. Um, the gallery Maison de Poivre, 
which is in the Prince Edward County area of Ontario. It's this beautiful, like, touristy area with wineries and old cities and antiques and stuff. Um, go If you're in Ontario, go see it, especially in the spring, summer. It's gorgeous. Um, but they represent me. Um, and uh, I have been there in, in twice now, uh, once in uh, the year before and then in 2023, uh, 2022 and 2023. Um, so they're great guys. Um, and they was in a show uh, called Positive Masculinity in Art that really tries to uh, re-examine masculinity and recontextualize it and sort of uh, remove some of the toxic aspects of it. Um, and they showed a number of my drawings and paintings. So yeah, they've been amazing. And also in Berlin, I was in a, a gallery as well um, at the NAST called Pride Art. Um, and I was honored to have some of my drawings there as well. I'm also in art school right now. This year I um, joined the Academy of Realist Art here in Toronto um, to shepherd my skills and you know, hopefully I uh, move my career in uh, that sort of direction. So that's those are my aspirations coming into 2024, um, you know, from 2023. Um, so, <clears throat> oh, you can find my work. I'll share my Instagram here. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mister Brad McD. So M-R Brad, B-R-A-D-M-C-D. Um, that's my Instagram. You can also find my letterbox reviews there as well. I don't really write a lot of reviews, just haven't had the time, but you can see my old ones and follow what I'm watching on Letterboxd there as well. Um, so looking at Criterion-wise, well, what I'm kind of hoping in the collection, um, I would love the Czechoslovak New Wave. Um, I've been talking recently with Josh here about um, the Czechoslovak New Wave, um, and we all know that they have accumulated a bunch of films that are on the channel, and they seem to be getting more. We keep hearing uh, more Czechoslovak New Wave added to the channel. This this month we got the Cassandra Cat, and all, they've all been kind of dripping in into the channel. And I'm really hoping that this means a big box set, um, just because there's so many of them. And I, you know, I know they've put out little ones like you know Diamonds of the Night and you know Daisies. Um, you know they got really highlighted. Um, and worthy. They're great films. Um, but I would really love if they just sort of put them all in, in, uh, in that maybe not those because they have their own individual releases, but what they have there, you know, assemble them together as a nice box set because that would be great. Um, and, you know, we're still waiting for upgrades of things like Closely Washed Trains, which is a really early release in the collection. And I'm wondering, are they holding off on that just because they want to gather all these great films up? In a box set and there's some overspill with what second run has been doing over <laughs> in in england as well um so it, i would be interesting to see and i'm hoping that 2024 is when we get that that box set um <clears throat> as far as wish lists um my hail mary i guess um a restorations of two peter greenway films that i would love to see <laughs> yes. um i'm sure you all know this because i talk about it all the time um the one the cook the thief his wife and her lover um which is a great film one of my favorites 
um, and it had a release from Umbrella, but it, I think there was just sort of an upgrade of the DVD because there's still, when you watch it, like there's still some restoration, some wonky color shifts and splicing, and I think there's even cigarette burns and stuff in it, which is fine. Like, I'm glad to have this movie rather than not have this movie, um, but that could use a really great uh, uh, restoration. And the other one is Prospero's books, um, which I think needs even a bigger restoration just because of the strange frame rate that Peter Greenway shot this at the time. It also has lots of different film elements, right? So there's a picture, and then there's a picture in a picture, and a picture in a picture, and they're all layered onto this film. And I'm just wondering um, if those individual elements need to be restored and be put together, or can they just take the master that they showed in, you know, cinemas and just restore it that way. I, you know, I know it's it's quite an effort, um, but I will say I find it strange that these two films, you know, lensed by Sasha Vierney, scored by Adam Neiman, that people are just like, eh, like, I don't know what's what's keeping them from getting a proper release, considering just what we're getting on Blu-ray. Like, this is really, so the, the boutique labels have really, you know, given us so much it's really like a uh we're kind of gluttons like we're just so privileged with what <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah, titles yeah. that we do get restored you know wherever you are in your love of cinema you know the whole gamut right like the just what we're getting is just staggering and you know these are not really old films they're fairly recent films they're prominent stars you know helen mirren and john gleggood mm-hmm. i can't remember how Gilgood, to pronounce it yeah Gilgood. You know, uh, Michael Gambon, just, they're beautiful, they're amazing, they don't look like anything else that's ever been made. Yeah, um, yeah. So Pros- I would really... Go ahead. Oh, Prospero's books is just one of the most visually astonishing things I've ever beheld in my entire life. It's just... Yes. Yeah, it's one of a kind. And, and it's like, yeah, this just has to be seen. It has to be preserved for future generations. I think, yeah, I think Criterion had it streaming for a, a brief amount of time. And, yes, uh, and I saw it really close to the end of its run, and it's like this is amazing. <laughs> yes, it is. So, yeah, so it's I'm on really... Canopy if you want to see it again. Oh, okay. Yeah, Canopy. Yeah, yeah. It's really up there with one of the best Shakespeare adaptations, like yeah, with Wells and Olivier and Branagh. Like it's it's our I think our best version of The Tempest. Though I do like Derek Jarman's No Shots Fired, um, <laughs> but like this yeah. is next level. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. All right. Well, Josh, you want to give us your fill in on uh, 2024 or look ahead, I should say. Yeah. 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 You know, I think for me, 2023 was a year of kind of learning my edges with uh, my health and uh, kind of learning to navigate my disability. So there are the podcast has been recorded and released in starts and stops i have a few uh episodes in the can that uh are in the process of being edited and released uh i'll be releasing one with uh celeste la cabra uh soon uh probably later today actually uh, as we're recording oh, this cool. uh that uh is uh the fi- the the conclusion of our conversation about the films of ishiro honda on the criterion channel uh, i've got two two more in the uh, can before I get to the first conversation that I had with Brad uh, McDermott uh, here. Uh, uh, I don't know why I used your last name, Brad. I apologize. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'm I'm excited about that. I'm in the process of, uh, you know, finishing up 
uh, my end of year viewing uh, to uh, kind of come up with uh, a list of, uh, of favorite films of the year. Uh, this year I'm a member of Film Independent and uh, we'll get to vote in the Indie Spirit Awards and I'm very excited about that. Um, so uh, I've got a bunch of uh, viewing to do in the next couple of months. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also going to be working on a film project this year for myself and uh, I'm very excited uh, to start tackling that in the new year. Uh, when it comes to kind of looking forward to the, the Criterion uh, collection, you know, it's, it's uh, like Jordan, I don't know that I am really good at predicting things. Um, I, I feel like they always take these wild swings um, and, you know, they have such a depth of titles uh, in their permanent streaming library that um, it's it's always um, a surprise to me which title they're going to pull out and decide to re release on disc, like uh, the ceremony uh, here at the end of the year. Um, uh, but I'm always really excited to see when they pull stuff off the channel and give them a full disc release. Um, whether it's the, the Jackie Chan adventures or <laughs> the, uh, yes. uh, the, the La Ceremonie, um, next month, uh, uh, next year we're getting, uh, the, the heroic, uh, trilogy or the heroic trio, uh, trio and the, uh, executioners, um, so we're getting some really great stuff that's coming directly from the channel. Um, uh, I am really hopeful that we're going to get more titles that are part of their deals with streamers. Uh, I'm glad we're getting Mudbound, the D. Reese film. Um, uh, I am, as I look at next, what's been announced for next year, we have um, at least three films that were um, that were out at kind of the peak of my uh, kind of or the beginning of my uh, college years and my excitement about art house cinema and indie cinema with you know to die for and train spotting and lone star so we're getting into this kind of 90s indie scene which i think is really fun to see um so that all is really exciting i would love to see though them begin to upgrade more of their dvd titles um I have them all. I, you know, I'm complete through, you know, the, the most recent stuff, but it would still be nice to get some better versions of the, the discs that we have. Uh, I've been, I watched through Hamlet as, uh, you know, I think, uh, Brad was saying, you know, I, I just watched that disc earlier this year and it, it could use, uh, some tender love and care, uh, mm -hmm. to get a, a nicer <laughs> version of that. And as I, every time I pop in a new disc, whether it's the, the, um, the Eisenstein set, um, or any of these, these discs that are, are really lovely, lovely films. They're really good films. The dryer set. Yeah. yeah we, yeah. we, it would be really nice to get some, um, uh, some of those restorations out or to get uh, a, a Blu-ray disc out on some of these. I'm glad we're getting some of this. I, I'm glad we've got uh, all that money can buy or the, the devil and Daniel Webster. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I would like to see them begin to continue to work their way through that back catalog and get some more of the stuff out this next year. Yeah. And I'll, I'll pretty much piggyback on that, Josh, as I kind of do my 
look ahead as well. You know, there there is basically all the spines before um, the six moral tales. You know, before they adopted the wacky sea. Mm-hmm. When I see even even like uh, what's the one? Uh, oh, just named escapes me. The one that was just blast of silence. It was just upgraded. Mm-hmm. It's like I didn't rush right out and buy that because you know the the DVD is still all right. I, I will get it eventually, but it's really all of that old stuff. The stuff with the you know the the original logo or the the line logo if you want to call it that yeah those are the ones where they really are um you know they're beginning to feel a little bit neglected and and underappreciated because they're just not in a format or packaging that other than the most obsessive completist that they're just not people are not going to look for it you know and so i i feel like criterion really does have uh, maybe not an obligation but they they would be doing uh good service not only to longtime fans like us uh, and collectors but even even you know newer younger folks and like i say if you're if you're in your 20s or haven't really been building a, a, a home media collection for very long then what an amazing year it was for the, all these 4ks i mean there's a an incredible kind of hall of fame lineup of just the the blu-ray to 4k upgrades that that the, they've released um uh, but for for many of us, the, the, that Blu-ray quality is still pretty good. You know, it still mm-hmm. comes through very adequately. Uh, I, I can acknowledge the 4K does add that little extra something there, but uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily enough to even justify 25 bucks at the half-off sale just for that little marginal Im- improvement. So they do have a, a catalog that I think is very worth tapping into, and these movies that have been you know on disc for you know 20 years or so will have a lot of freshness to them once they're kind of reopened and rediscovered and, and back in the discourse. So, yeah, as so I look ahead, uh, a couple things I, I'll just share. Uh, I, I think I am at a point where I'm not just going to automatically blind buy everything that Criterion puts out anymore. And it's partly just because of shelf space, because I've got a pretty comprehensive library, and also because you know they ended the year at spine number 1200 and i did get the pinocchio set too so i've got everything through 2023 but i i do feel like i'm going to try to my best to watch as many of these new titles as i can whether that's through streaming maybe even rentals or, or borrow from my library but i i feel like um having my entire personality based on the fact that I own all the Criterion films. That's that's of my past, <laughs> okay? <laughs> <laughs> there are other dimensions of myself that I want to explore now <laughs> and share with the world. So anyways, yeah, I so when the next half-off sale comes in, I'm not just going to be, you know, ordering everything that came out since Pinocchio necessarily. But we'll see. That That's kind of my New Year's resolution, if you will. I, I may relapse. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to let time tell that tale. Um, I'm also <laughs> at a point of, you know, I just finished uh, season four, if you will, of my uh, Criterion Reflections podcast um, with, uh, with State of Siege. That was the last one that we did. That was the last film that was dated as a release of 1972. So I'm at a point where I can sort of start a new effort. And so what I'm going to be doing with my Criterion Reflections podcast, I'm going to turn it into more like short YouTube videos so that I can pick up the pace and cover all these films from 1973. But I'm also going to keep the podcast going for films that I feel like have... Uh, substance enough that I want to go into that deeper, longer conversation. Because it's taken me sometimes two or three weeks or a month or more just to get one episode scheduled with the different guests who want to be part of it. So I'm going to start a new project basically with the new year, which is doing short, you know, five, ten minute reviews of, of, uh, of 
these films, maybe a YouTube clip or something like that. Not just TikTok, but but maybe more on the YouTube format. So so Brad, yeah, you and I are going to be doing Ludwig, okay? <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> so and, and and I've got the, the list, and and I will continue to to you know get folks together and say, hey, who wants to talk about this movie with me? But it might be a film that I've already covered, but I just want to keep my sequence going a little bit more quickly. I recognize people also have shorter attention spans these days, and asking them to, to, to tune into an hour and a half conversation on a podcast you know, may not be enough to, to, to get all the engagement I'd like to. So I'm going to try something a little bit different, and that's kind of my announcement, if you will, or at least, uh, like I say, it's, it's a notion that I'm kind of kicking around and I'm ready to share publicly here at the tail end of this podcast so yeah i definitely want to see criterion um bring back some of those classics uh, in new new editions but i am equally intrigued and delighted and excited to see where they kind of take us next because there are so many films that uh you know um some of which i've seen like we screened all the beauty and the bloodshed at our film society earlier this year so it's nice to see that kind of getting validated on disc and uh, just you know I, I have an implicit trust in their judgment and their connections and, and in their in their own curiosity to continue being at the forefront of, of not just you know the best packaging but really showing us you know, you know the best of cinema current and and uh, in times past across cultures you know across styles and genres and film movements so you know criterion still has my loyalty but I'm just maybe going to be a little less materialistic or obsessive on the collecting side of it. So those are some thoughts I have at the moment. We'll see how long that lasts when the next flash sale comes along. Anyways, guys, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Happy to keep this tradition alive and definitely enjoyed a couple hours of companionship online talking with each of you. Uh, Any final comments that anybody wants to toss out there before we draw the curtain down? Well, since everybody kind of in turn announced things yeah. they were working on, just like say congratulations, everybody, on their projects. Yeah. I, I look forward to, to seeing all that come to fruition. It sounds exciting. Going back to school, Brad, you know, and having a new show, uh, working on a film, Josh, that sounds awesome. And and David, yeah. you know, reformulating your, your approach to to your your online, you know, diaristic <laughs> exploration of the of the collection yeah. it's, it's cool sounds it's exciting yeah, and jordan i'm excited to see where you take this uh combination of journalism and uh painting i think this yeah. is uh, yeah. really uh a cool approach so i'm very yeah. excited to see that me too keep us posted for sure yeah Thanks, and be sure to send me updated links i think uh we'll put those in the show notes so if you have a you know like brad's already mentioned his instagram but if you got a website articles jordan i think you mentioned uh, some writing you've done online so if there's a if there's a shareable link there uh let's go ahead and load that up so that listeners can follow up on some of our uh, uh personal ventures and recommendations so with that, I'm going to draw it down and, and wrap up this uh, this 2023 episode of our favorites from the Criterion Collection. So thank you for listening, everybody. Appreciate any feedback you want to give us uh, online where we post links to this episode. And let us know how you're doing and maybe some of your own favorites of the year. Maybe there, there's a lot of great films that we didn't really reference or mention. Uh, time kind of runs out on us. But if you've got some uh, films you want to show some love or some packages, cover art, whatever you want to do, uh, let us know what you think. And uh, we'll be talking to you all real soon. But for now, good night and happy new year. Bye-bye. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama, papa coming for you.
Space Invader I'll be a rock and roll and bitch for you 